Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Is it right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Let's go again. Perfect. COVID-19 is the biggest pandemic facing humanity in more than a century. One year in, and we are still looking for the light at the end of the tunnel. Models and data have played a very crucial role in this response. In this special podcast series, we'll be talking to our fellow researchers from NSAC at the Biocomplexity Institute, University of Virginia. The team has been tirelessly supporting COVID-19 response in the U.S. at the local, state, and federal levels. And in this episode, we'll be talking to Drs. Henning Motwai and Stefan Hoops about the software infrastructure behind the pandemic response. Hi, I'm Srini Venkatramanan. And I'm Erin Raymond. Let's go talk to the COVID chaser. Hi, I'm Henny Mortlight. I have been with this group uh, for more than 20 years. I started with a group in Los Alamos and uh, I combine mathematics and sort of theory for simulations with uh, modeling and software design and, uh, and their implementations. Yeah, I'm Stefan Hoops. I'm um research associate professor in the Biocomplexity Institute. And I'm with this group since I think five or six years, but I was one of the people who hired this group into the VBI, the Virginia Bioinformatics Institute at Virginia Tech from Los Alamos. Yes. Yeah, you guys are both, you you are very familiar with this group. Seasoned players. Seasoned players, I like that. And uh, Henning and I know us from before. We went to the same uh, university in Norway. Ah, I didn't know that. Yeah, Stefan, um, he was uh, you were a PhD student when I came as an undergrad student in Trondheim, Norway, and he had this scary advisor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he, he demanded respect from the students. I remember that. I didn't have him in any course, but... Uh, it, just, just the person, uh, the, the figure when he was standing in front, he was a massive kind of guy. We all are small against him. Tall, big, <laughs> not necessarily heavy, but impressive. Right. impressive. So um, as a total aside that has nothing to do with any of this, but makes me think of this, my grandmother, my dad's mom taught high school math and she taught to to my mom so before my mom knew my dad mm-hmm. when my mom was in high school and so when she met my dad and then found out that <laughs> my mom was mrs armstrong the scariest person they'd ever met. <laughs> yes so scary advisors scary mother-in-laws yeah i mean my poor mom, my mother-in-law had that reputation before, before she even met my dad. No, my, my, advi- my advisor was not scary at all. He was a very, very nice guy. I knew him when he was uh, just finished his PhD and uh, I was an undergrad in Germany. That's when I first met him. So we go long back. <laughs> long way back. So you knew he wasn't scary. Um, okay, so well, let's, let's flash forward to a year ago. Um, So how, talk a little bit about maybe how you guys have been working, uh, contributing to our COVID work. What what roles have you been playing? All right. Yeah, so during this uh, last year in the the responses to COVID, um, there's been many, many, many things uh, up in the air. So we've had to respond to various agencies, uh, federal offices, and uh, to support that work, we had to prepare synthetic populations for the U.S. and uh, 
I was leading that effort. Uh, we also had to have a simulation uh, software to, um, to basically describe how epidemics grow uh, and evolve over the populations when you have different kinds of interventions. And um, we designed this tool. We have the EpiHyper tool. Stefan is the one who implemented it and then spent a lot of time on, uh, on that afterwards. Um, and then there's been other efforts like the uh, modeling what happened at the campus during COVID, how did the students contact each other and so on. There's been a massive effort. We looked at specific government buildings to see what happens with epidemic spread inside buildings at a very detailed level. So. And how about you, Stefan? How did you get roped in? Yeah, so it's... We, we, we were somewhat lucky that we had the tool ready yeah. at the beginning, but it was not tested and uh, it had uh, performance uh, shortcomings, which needed to be addressed so that we can do simulation for the whole of right. the US state by state. So it, it, uh, there, there were challenges and uh, all these had to be addressed under the pressure that we constantly need to <laughs> deliver data for the agencies. <laughs> Right, they didn't really care that we still needed to build the thing, right? They wanted they wanted their answers. Yeah, I think one aspect that uh, we had to come suddenly switch was like doing the slow methodical approach to building systems or even just doing science and then starting in this response mode, which I don't think we've gotten out of <laughs> still. So how was that transition and especially navigating that along with suddenly working as a big team, but completely remotely? Uh, maybe you can talk to that. Yeah, so um, one of the challenges during this year was, was not to be able to work face-to-face, uh, -face, to not be, by, to be able to be by a whiteboard and basically come to an agreement and have a common understanding of what was to be done. So I think there was um, maybe some of the uh, time it takes to commute to work was lost in, in, in that respect. but. Uh, but, but we really tried hard to, to in some sense, marry like the, the need for speed mm -hmm. and delivery times to, to also um, try to build systems that um, would not just be there in, in the moment, but also would be able to, um, to live beyond this, uh, this, this time. So I think that we, right. we struck some middle ground, and I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think we were somewhat prepared for that remote uh, working because we had already two locations, Blacksburg and uh, Charlottesville. So we True. we had more experience than others with this tele, uh, using Zoom and being not in the same room. But when we were mm -hmm. completely pushed to right. it, 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 it was a challenge. Right. And uh, it, it is missing the free exchange of ideas. So Henning, Dustin, and I actually have a coffee clutch. Oh, nice. You know what that is, Aaron? No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think the general audience would know. It's, it, it's a German word. It uh, is a loose get-together in the afternoon, having a coffee, having a piece of cake, and chatting. And sometimes, but not officially, maybe something else to go with a coffee. It's also liquid. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, is there? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But not not with us, of course. We are serious people. We don't. Uh, oh, of course. We stick to the copy. Yes, of course. Very serious. So is, it, is that more or less fun than doing the puzzles? 
<laughs> I think it's a different dimensions. I think that they, <laughs> they go together maybe. Yes, I've been doing puzzles at home, honey. I miss your math brain. Yeah. Because I remember sometimes you would just walk right up and we would be, oh my gosh, we can't find this piece. And you would say, oh, it's this one. Boop. And then you would walk away. Oh, <laughs> math. Yeah. I did a puzzle. I did a puzzle. I think it was Christmas break, a cat puzzle. And uh, I'll bring it in when we get back to operations again. Like I can't, that one is just way oh, yeah. hard. So. Good. We couldn't find I, I couldn't do my trick of refining the piece and plugging it right in like it didn't work we love it Art, <laughs> this team loves a challenge for sure um so you have your coffee clutch and that helps you to stay together at least with dustin have you found um other challenges especially maybe in in working with people that you haven't physically met before um new people that join the group yeah, it's if you and we have postdocs, and I'm working with two, uh, Mukta and Baltasar, and it it took a while, but uh, I think we are now comfortable with each other because you never saw them, you never saw them in person. There is no right. no relationship from that point of view, but right. uh, it it builds also. It's uh, just you need to respond, be flexible, and uh, yeah do whatever you can do to, uh, to participate in communications all channels video uh, teams email all right i'll let shrini ask some more technical questions sure uh, i think yeah uh, you both touched upon the synthetic population and this epihyper uh, uh, which is the agent-based simulator that leverages it so maybe you can talk to like uh, the kind of things that you're proud of uh, that you were able to accomplish. I think this was in development for quite some time and it leverages a lot of the technology that we've built over several years, if not decades. But uh, what what were the things that you feel really proud? And it could be before COVID, but it actually materialized last year. And so maybe you can reflect upon some of those. Yeah, I think one of the, uh, the major accomplishments, uh, it, it, it ties into what uh, Stefan said about the uh, we, we had some luck too because we had things in progress like the epihyper the the similar was um, we had worked on that uh, on the design for quite a while and, and stefan had uh, come to like the end of the implementation near october of 2019 i think it was so like, things things were lined up uh, but still there was a lot of work to be done and one of the big things uh, regarding populations uh, in my opinion is that uh, we now have um, a complete pipeline that can compute uh, things from one end to the other. That can uh, uh, really uh, and generate all the data components that put into a population. That's nothing that we ever had before. So, um, and it's, it's 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 quite reasonable, and um, I think that 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 is, uh, is is a leap forward. Of course, there's work remaining. Like everything can be improved, but uh, to have this capability, where we can, uh, in some sense, by the a snap of a finger or hitting a return 50 times, we can construct the populations for the 50 states of the US. And uh, that, that is a leap forward, I think, that is uh, very important for the group. And in fact, just to add some more context for the general audience, like when we talk about populations, it's not like some aggregate levels of counties or something. We are yeah. actually representing individuals with activities. So the scale of these are basically like 300 million individuals in like 50 states with all their connections and workplaces and households. So 
I can imagine like yeah that that should have felt like when first time uh the uh, what you would call like a slum job or the compute job finished with a success log that should have been yeah a clear high moment <laughs> what i can say which i actually am quite happy was we spent a lot of time on the design but uh, i think we got it quite well because we haven't found a problem any of the agencies has thrown at us, which we cannot express in the intervention, uh, in the mathematical description of the interventions which we implemented in the tool. And together with the rich population information which we get out of the pipeline, uh, we were able to basically do everything. What uh, we never envisioned is that we have to build the model for 50 states and all 50 states have their individual characteristics there's an other number of uh, cases currently so when we are right now working on uh, what's the best vaccination strategy uh, each state has to be treated differently and uh, initialized differently and i think Srini can uh, say that it goes actually down to county level differences yeah. Yeah. Wow. And uh, yeah, we, we had to build pipelines like that uh, on the side. And I think we, are get, we, we have something now. Yeah. And I think another, uh, I would say technical, but also in terms of uh, utility wise, one thing that we were trying to add was more attributes to the individuals, like uh, I think demographic profiles that go beyond age, gender, because a lot of the social disparities were becoming apparent with the epidemic. And I think that that's something that at least I, uh, I, I found that very important to characterize. Uh, I think census uh, has some information, but uh, bringing that in was something that I, I, I felt like, yeah, we were going in the right direction in terms of improving more, uh, populations. Yeah, ethnicity and social uh, standing uh, or that is plays a role in how the disease affects people. Yeah, I think like another aspect like uh, maybe this is uh, maybe a controversial question but like maybe let's see but uh, the, the the kind of populations that we build uh, right. immediately uh, I, I, one thing that I was thinking was like okay we built this complex re representation of people going to work and schools and suddenly everyone's staying at home and <laughs> not uh, working <laughs> telecommuting or taking online education and uh, so maybe uh, you can talk to like how uh, what do you think in terms of the short-term and long-term challenges to keep these uh, going and uh, and in general, like reflect upon what it takes to keep an infrastructure. Like I think Henning mentioned this, building something that will last, but will also be responsive. But uh, you, can, you can answer that in multiple timescales also. Because I think that one of the challenges that came with the COVID was that it uh, introduced a new sort of a ground, uh, a ground truth. Uh, people wouldn't, um, mix as they normally would. And uh, our models, of course, uh, uh, they are calibrated to, to, uh, to like, uh, what is what was normal before COVID. So in, in some ways, uh, um, by design, like uh, since uh, most people then that did something for social distancing, they would uh, refrain from certain activities or they would wear a mask. So in some sense, like what we already had could be modified and capture that kind of mixing. So in that regard, it was, uh, I don't know if it was luck exactly, but uh, 
that was something that we could um, reasonably handle, I thought. Um, I do think that, sort of speaking more broadly, that um, with the clear modeling and the designs we have, that uh, we really can accommodate uh, many, many different situations. So uh, we can think about where we can modify people's schedules. They can do certain things that, uh, that we can also accommodate, and we can remap uh, your contacts in the contact network, it, it, it is actually quite flexible. So I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with that. Yeah, Henning mentioned something there, but I also think that uh, what this showed us is that the networks are not static. We, we had one contact network at the beginning and that's what we are working with where we do a different simulation, but we really saw that these networks evolve, evolve in time. And that is another challenge. It's in right now, we, we basically have another time scale of the evolving networks uh, in addition to the disease progression on the network. Uh, so that is a challenge. And I think we're going to address that sometime, hopefully sometime in the future. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I think like as any mentioned, somewhat you have these uh, uh, ways of tuning the network. Like it's about finding the right data and mapping it to our representation but you can turn off edges you can activate different activities and so i think that that speaks to the design choices right in the beginning rather than uh straight jacketing us to some static network no no it, it is not we can't we can uh, cut edges out of the system so we can do home isolation we can do social distancing but uh, we, it is harder for us uh, to say, oh, the people go less often to the store. So that is maybe true, but what is with social events and things, other behavior which, uh, yeah, has changed. Is that we are missing some parts there. We can cover a lot, but this time evolving and this gradually evolving over the changes. Now is, uh, it, we get good news, people relax, and that is a gradual change in the network and behavior. And uh, we, we, it's hard for us to really get that. We can trigger some parameters to get that kind of behavioral change, but we do not get to the underlying uh, problem, which changes. So that is, uh, so we actually are involved in some work, and Stefan is part of it too. It's uh, under one of our Giddy projects. So now we have a, we have a model where um, we actually allow for a behavioral model to be part of the simulation. So uh, as an example, a, a person that uh, observes many people when they go shopping, many people that uh, either are doing social doing social distancing, or they can be can, uh, they have that many sick people. Can then make decisions about refraining from shopping for a certain duration after that, and then have that dynamically then alter the business schedule they have. So, so we we have a work in progress in that direction too. What are some things that um, that you wish that you had known back when this started? That that some tools, maybe some software, um, or even just some thoughts from your personal life that would have made this pandemic a little easier to get through? Yeah, I think one of the challenges is um, um, uh, how the, um, 
work private life boundary is uh, completely washed out so mm. and uh, yes. of course when there is so much to do then uh, <laughs> that boundary tends to be skewed or fallen pushed the private part uh, off the table so so that, that is something that's been challenging i think to to, to find like this uh, the, yes first of all like the work whatever other, other life boundary that has been challenging yeah i i think it's the same uh, especially right. when high pressure situations uh, uh, work and uh, private life it happens it happens at the same location happens simultaneously and it happens more and more work because you have some to do and uh, yeah but i i think what right private life is also limited it's it's not as much uh, activity as we had before we cannot go out we cannot go to a restaurant we cannot see a concert uh, or right. wherever it is just just in, even if it's outside it, it doesn't happen so yeah. it is limited yeah. and i think that that is frustrating and not as nice as it is but i i think i'm lucky that i have a job where i still can do interesting work and uh, and i'm in a safe environment and uh, so yes yeah, the second map, but what Stefan says, and that we, um, in many ways, I feel very lucky to be uh, part of a university like this and a group like we are that uh, where there is this flexibility that we can work from home and uh, we can also do it efficiently. It is uh, sort of like speaking loudly for the US, I don't think so many can say that, at least not percentage wise. So um, that is uh, a big boon. And uh, also, not commuting to work, it, uh, it does open up some time, but usually it is spent uh, working on something. <laughs> yes, you're. That's exactly right, Henning. So many people have said, "Oh yeah, now that I don't have to commute anymore, you know, that gives me another hour every day to do what? To work more. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so I'm not sure that's a good trade-off. I mean, for a lot of people, that 30-minute commute is the time you listen to podcasts or you don't listen to anything and you just let your mind wander or you call your mom, yeah. whatever. And we don't do that anymore. There, there's no separation. No, there's no, no reset, nothing like. Yeah, yeah. So we did get, we did get, we got a dog. Um, it was pretty much one, one year yes. ago. So uh, yes. every day I have to take two, two nice walks with a dog. So uh, I, awesome. I do get out. Like, so that has been uh, very helpful to keep some normalcy in place. <laughs> Is that uh, that uh, provides some sanity, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think at least for me, like I've set up my work uh, computer and everything in my guest room. So when I'm leaving from my living room to the guest room, I'm like, I'm off to work and then I'm back home. And that's the only <laughs> way I can. Yeah. I heard but, about, yeah. I heard about people that um, now have this make-believe commute. Right. They kind of get dressed, they go in their car. <laughs> And they commute by 15 minutes back to their house and they are at work. Hmm. And, then they, and then they go home again at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> they needed, they needed like, to, to get in the mindset and they needed the downtime, like whatever the podcast or the radio or nothing. Like. Not a bad idea. Hmm. <laughs> I wish, I mean, for the question that Erin was asking, I wish I had known that on day one of pandemic. <laughs> so maybe, yeah, I think uh, both of you have a unique perspective uh, on like the longevity of the group uh, in terms of like working with uh, uh, even though Stefan mentioned like you joined the group uh, more recently but like you've worked with th this kind of a team environment for quite some time 
Yeah, I have worked with uh, Stephen Madaf and uh, Katrin Wendelsdorf and uh, Max Duhl. So I had been in close collaboration with people of the group for for far longer time. That collaboration more than fifteen years, I guess. Yeah. So especially in that uh, in that perspective, like the question I had was like. There, there is, uh, I think we've heard from others also that like building software while sitting inside, uh, a, a, say, a corporate uh, company or something uh, has a very different feel to building the, within a research institution when people are constantly changing needs and also the uh, the kind of platforms that you're doing or the people you're doing it with, uh, they also keep moving around. So uh, maybe you can talk about like how, how do you keep and even the funding situation uh, to complicate things. So how do you uh, navigate those aspects uh, when you're talking about like infrastructure that lives for quite some time? Yeah, it's a keeping software alive. It's not just a challenge in the, it, it's a challenge whether you are in the commercial world or in the, in the academic world, but I think it's, even more challenging in the academic world because you it's not so easy to say okay i don't do that anymore because there are researchers which use your tool and they want to continue using the tool and if you say you don't do work on that tool anymore it takes two years and the tool is dead because it will not work on new operating system it will not uh, address uh, changing requirements so that is a challenge so I am working now for over 20 years on a software which is called Kupasi. And uh, we managed with various kind of funding uh, resources with a diverse group, it's an international collaboration to keep that afloat for such a long time. It might come to an end because it's, uh, though it is an established resource and it's used uh, widely in uh, research and in teaching, and we have about 150, 120, 150 pu uh, publications each, each year citing the software, and that's still increasing. So it's uh, still it's going to be tough to get f uh, further funding to keep it alive. We have some kind of maintenance for the next four years, but it's only minimal. So to really do something new and uh, get it to the next level, it's it's not going to be so easy. Yeah, I think that, that, that is, uh, uh, I would say it's a problem or a challenge we are aware of in academia, but uh, so, so in many ways, like being in the uh, like self-funded academic world, we, um, when we deliver products like software, then uh, there is this implicit understanding that we, we will be supporting the software. And that, um, Certainly, the whatever you want, the, the principles that you would be see, see more often in a software company, they would apply to us. They do apply to us. Like, um, but in some sense, I think that the academic world, uh, most of it, uh, doesn't recognize uh, that challenge. So, um, so we are in a unique position in many ways, but we also that also brings us a unique uh, sort of, uh, I would like to say, challenges. That, that is one of them. Yeah, I think like uh, there's one about like improving your uh, quality of the water, but the other is just keeping the water running. And mm -hmm. 
so i think uh, every time uh, in any workshop they when people ask like what do you need support for the for infrastructure like we need something that lives beyond 4 5 years and every time we come back and say like what what is the new thing that we want to support mm-hmm. uh, is, is it still is it still the whole, oh, same thing that you've been doing for the last 10 years why do you need more money for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, that is just the experience with copasi is it, we can get a new algorithm a new uh, analysis in the tool pretty pretty quickly test the algorithm out get it to work but we spent years on keeping the user interface up to date and uh, improving that that it gets easy to use so uh, you you become yeah you start to work like a software company you you're going to keep your user happy by making it easy for them to use the software all right so i think we're about at our time limit thank you so much for joining us today Uh, we will certainly reach out to you to do a deeper dive in the more technical aspects, um, but we really appreciate your your contributions to our sort of general broad um, oral history. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. You're welcome. It was fun. Okay. Yeah. All right, that's it for this episode of COVID Chasers. Subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, go to our website biocomplexity.virginia.edu/nssacnsac or follow us on Twitter at uva_nsac. Stay safe and see you next time. On the next episode of COVID Chases, the epidemic and responding to it, I think has really pushed us to a new level. The concept of synthetic populations is actually very interesting. I particularly like it because I'm a computer scientist and it's really a computational perspective.